News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I am Deb Hutton. I am in all this week hosting News Talk today. Thanks for joining us. We've got a busy show over the next couple of hours. Get your phones ready at 1-855-633-1010. In fact, I'm going to start the show off today with a topic that I think is going to generate a few phone calls, maybe a few texts to 71010. And it's a story of a counselor who is, he's actually a candidate for council in a southwestern Ontario community. The candidate's name is Carson Warner, and he's running for council in Ward 6 of the southwestern Ontario community of Chatham-Kent. Now, the reason he's generating some controversy over the last couple of days is because some pictures have surfaced from November of 2007, specifically Halloween 2007, sorry, uh, October, So 15 years ago, almost exactly. And these pictures are of Warner dressed as an Al-Qaeda terrorist. If you see some of the pictures online, you will see he is in full uh, garb, including headscarf. And and this may be the controversial part or the whole thing may be controversial. Let me know at 1-855-633-1010. But he is in brown face. And of course, this is not the first time we've seen politicians who have dressed up for a variety of reasons in brownface or blackface. But I don't want to talk about the Prime Minister of Canada this afternoon. I want to talk about Carson Warner. And the interesting part for me is that Warner is fully standing behind the costume. He uh, has spoken about this over the last couple of days. He said it was for Halloween. It was specific to Halloween. He wouldn't do it at any other time. He said that it was out in public. This wasn't a private party. He was, he actually says he was at the Elephant's Nest Bar in downtown Chatham on Halloween. Several pictures were taken. Part of his costume had a fake bomb attached to his chest. And he says, I stand behind it. I don't think there's anything wrong with this. I was expressing my disgust and disdain for Al-Qaeda in 2007. He says it was six years after 9-11. At the time, there were, there were skits, whether it was Saturday Night Live or others, that were mocking Al-Qaeda terrorists and certainly uh, condemning them for their actions around 9-11. He emphasized he wouldn't wear it, as I said, any other time of the year, but he felt Halloween was the right time and place to express his feelings about the terrorist group. He's not worried. He's continuing to run. I don't know whether he'll win or not. But the question is, was this appropriate in 2007? Is it appropriate today if he were to dress up in this manner for Halloween? Or is this completely not on for anybody, particularly someone running for public office, at any point in time? 416 I'm sorry, 1-855-633-1010 or text at 71010. Do you agree with me that it's okay as long as it's in Halloween in the context in which he did it and it is to express disgust or, or mocking of a particular group? Or can we just not in this day and age, let alone in 2007, do brownface? regardless of the context. Give me a shout. Let me know your thoughts on this thing. I will
say that generally speaking, I do think we are at a point in time that is inappropriate for us to dress in a manner that mocks people. But I also think that there can be a time and place for expressing particular views. I just don't know if this is one of them. I don't know if if any sort of dressing up for a particular culture is appropriate anymore. I'll tell you, my girls had uh, something at their school called a walkathon, and each class chose a country. And the class would dress appropriately for the country in their flag colors, you name it. And we had parents who complained because they felt that it was cultural appropriation to dress up in the traditional garb of a country. I thought that was too much. I thought the kids learned a lot about a country by taking on this exercise. one 855 Let's go to the phones. David, welcome to News Talk today. What's your thought? It's a costume. I mean, it's, it's gotten to a point where, um, especially going back to 2007, I mean, the man's policies are his policy. What he runs on, he runs on. But it was a Halloween costume. You know, and we, 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 we definitely have gotten to a point where if someone does something that is deemed inappropriate now, we jump all over them. I just find it it's getting a little too much, you know, and uh, I just think he's it doesn't represent who he is. It was Halloween, as he said. He stands by it. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Now, David, just let me ask you, what if he did it in Halloween 2022 this this month? It's a costume. Still a costume for you. It doesn't I do matter. I not see anything wrong with it. Yeah, I do not see. It's like someone putting on Donald Trump uh, mask. Okay. What, what's, yeah, I, it's a costume. I'm laughing because uh, we actually have a Donald Trump mask in our Halloween basket. So there you go. Thanks for the call, David. People are offended by Donald Trump. So if like, I don't, you know, so it, it's just Halloween. You wouldn't wear it around the street. So <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Thanks for the call, David. Interesting. I wonder, I should have asked him if it would be the same thing if you were wearing an Obama mask. Very, very different for some people. Uh, let's go to Terry in Kitchener. Terry, what's your thought on this? Well, I've got to say, uh, the gentleman is, is very inventive uh, coming up with this mocking attitude. There okay. Was nothing, nothing he was mocking. He was dressed up. He was in brown face. Please show me uh, or explain to me how he was mocking the bombers. Okay. It just doesn't wash. So excuse aside, you would say this is just not appropriate in 2007 and today? It's never appropriate to do something like that, whether it was 20 years ago or, or today or whatever. No. Uh, and his, his story that he was doing this to mock them, it just doesn't hold water. All right. Thanks for that, Terry. We're going to move along. We've got Alex in Montreal. Alex, what's your take on this? I think it's a little over, uh, overblown. It was for Halloween and all that. If uh, if someone, if I would be a candidate and they look over my history of Halloween costumes, then people will be questioning me too. Okay, so the fact that it's Halloween though makes it okay, which is one of his his rationales. Yeah, well, because look, I was an Indian, I was a Mexican with brown face, a Mexican wrestler with brown face, and all that. It's like. 
people are overreacting for some, so many things now. Okay. Thanks for that, Alex. We're going to keep moving here. Lots of interest in this topic. Billy from Ottawa, what's your take on this? Is it ever appropriate to go in brown face and wear traditional clothing? So hopefully you can hear me. I'm driving in my car. So yep. to me, it's, it's a difference between actual traditional wear and garbage costume stuff. So we've all seen the little, like, Indian costumes and all that kind of stuff at Halloween, but but that's not an accurate depiction of the actor of the actual culture, and I think that's where the biggest problem comes in is where you have the caricature stuff as the depiction of the costumes and that. If you put actual effort into getting actual traditional garb and do it properly, I would say that it could possibly be appropriate. Not and what what about properly. the what about the brown face component, Billy? Uh, to me, I don't. Uh, I don't think you should ever be painting your face. I mean, I guess you know, I can say, well, you know, I I went as Darth Maul to, to Halloween, so I painted my face red. But that's a character. It's a caricature, right? You're, you're not actually, you know, painting your face to look like like you know a different culture. So I would say, you know, just don't put on the black face and wear the actual traditional garb and put actual thought into your costume, and, and you should be okay. It, it's kind of like when when prime ministers and presidents meet and they go to other... We're going to have to uh, leave it there. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Network. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I'm Deb Hutton this week hosting uh, News Talk Today. I uh, will be here for the next uh, hour and a little bit, hour and three quarters, talking about some of the stories that have happened in many cases over the course of the weekend and some this morning. And in fact, that takes us to our next topic, which is we're going to have a daily update uh, all this week on News Talk today about what's happening in the federal government's inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. We're going to hear about the testimony of this morning and uh, what we've learned and what that all means going forward. And joining us to break that down is Judy Tran, who's correspondent for CTV News. Judy, welcome to News Talk Today. Hi there, Deb. Glad to be here. So what happened this morning? Just recapping last week, we heard from a couple of provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan, that they hadn't asked for the use of the Emergencies Act. We heard a little bit about folks who were living it on a day-to-day basis and uh, and the, the sort of the trauma that they said they experienced at the time. Who did we hear from this morning? Well, today we are finally getting our first look at what was happening behind the scenes uh, with uh, city officials and police officers as they tried to uh, manage the situation that was escalating uh, on a daily basis. Now, on uh, the stand testifying at the commission today is the city general manager, Ottawa uh, Steve Kamikalakis. And what Kamikalakis said was that he was relying, the city was relying on police, Ottawa police, to be the lead agency to tell them exactly how the city can support them. And the first question he was asked right away was to address an email that was sent to him on January 25th. Now, Deb, I want to remind our uh, listeners that the protesters, the trucks, started coming into Ottawa on January 28th. So three days before that happened, 
Steve Kamklakis was given, was sent an email by the president of the Ottawa Gatineau Hotel Association. And it was from the group Canada Unity, the organizing group that was organizing this protest on the hill. And what they requested from the hotel association was hotel rooms. They wanted to negotiate a block of hotel rooms to accommodate between 10 and 15,000 protesters who wanted to stay for 30 days and possibly up to 90 days. So Ken Kalakis was asked, why, why wasn't this taken into account? You obviously had warning. And what Ken Kalakis said was that according to police, uh, he did forward this email, but police were getting lots of intelligence. And all the information that they were gathering, they were uh, assessing whether or not it was feasible. And to their best knowledge, their information at that time was that they would get between uh, three to maybe 5,000 protesters who were only planning to stay the weekend for three days and possibly into Wednesday, that it was going to be uh, a short, a relatively short uh, protest. There would be some disruptions, but everything would be cleared by Wednesday, but obviously they stayed for more than three weeks, Deb. Yeah, and this email would suggest, uh, we're talking to Judy Trin, who's correspondent for CTV National News, this email would suggest that there was much different intelligence at least taking place in some levels. That right. That's right. So there was, uh, once again, you know, these are questions that we are going to have to, uh, that the commission is going to have to ask uh, uh, former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly as to why uh, it wasn't assessed as credible or why it wasn't taken more seriously. But there was another, other information that emerged from uh, this morning's uh, testimony was the fact that the city of Ottawa kept on asking the provincial authorities for help. Uh, for more tools. And what they were told, uh, Kevin Clark has uh, testified that he was on several calls with uh, then Solicitor General uh, Sylvia Jones, asking for the province uh, to uh, enforce its commercial licensing rules for truckers, perhaps uh, ha- giving police the authority to uh, check their license and registration and insurance, and perhaps threatening to like take that away so that they can uh, add pressure for them to move. But what he was told was that this was not something that the politicians should be involved in. This was a policing matter and should be dealt with by police. And Deb, I want to point out something. At this commission, you are going to hear, we are going to hear from RCMP officials, we are going to hear from OPP officials, and we are going to hear from federal government uh, leaders as well as municipal leaders. What we don't hear from is Ontario provincial government leaders. And what we heard from Ken Klassis was that in his meetings, these tripartite meetings that were supposed to be uh, with federal ministers as well as the mayor, and hopefully what they were hoping, they extended the invitation to uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, was that he declined. He did not participate. There was, there was no Ontario politician who participated in any of these tripartite emergency meetings during the convoy, Deb. So, Judy, here's one of my issues with this inquiry. Now that you've you've raised the issue of the provincial government, I'll just I'll hit you with it. And, and having been watching it, maybe you can help me. So, my understanding of why the legislation requires a look after it is actually in um, uh, used is so that you we can understand as a public 
whether it was a legitimate use of the Emergencies Act or whether it was a political use. And of course, if it's purely politics, in other words, if there was not enough legitimate rationale to invoke this legislation and the use of it, then that's something the public would want to know. So I, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, to your point, that's exactly what this commission is about. Did it meet the requirements for a national security emergency that required this uh, unprecedented use of the Emergency Act? And that is something that uh, that has to be revealed or that has that uh, Commissioner uh, Rouleau will have to find. Uh, I want to point out, Deb, that, uh, you know, we haven't heard from all the federal government officials and we haven't we're expecting to hear from the mayor of Ottawa tomorrow. Right. So in terms of that political sense, you might get a better sense that once those uh, politicians uh, testify. But it's important to note that last week, the focus was on just the overwhelming uh, pressure uh, and stress that uh, Ottawa residents felt. They felt traumatized. We heard of individuals who uh, are experiencing hearing loss, individuals who cannot sleep. But we also heard about a general lawlessness. And when we say lawlessness, I'm not just talking, like, what makes a city function isn't just criminal laws, right? It is it's city bylaws. And none of those bylaws were being enforced in the downtown core during this, uh, during this protest. So we did not have, um, we had open fires. We had fireworks being set off. We now hear that we had blaring horns, right? We knew that at all hours. And these are bylaws. We had open defecation, open urination on the streets, as well as harassment and uh, of uh, citizens. So the question is, citizens are looking to police, uh, to bylaw, to enforce these so that they can function. And that didn't happen. So, And what did why? the city manager say about that? Because those bylaw enforcements are, in fact, under, I would think, his purview. That's right. What Ken Kalakas said today was that he, it was reasonable and that he knew and that, that bylaw officers were not going to enforce uh, parking violations uh, or, you know, open fire bans uh, on the streets during this time. And the reason why was because the bylaw officers did not feel safe. They needed, in order to, they were worried that if they were to uh, hand out tickets, that they would be attacked. Uh, by protesters, and that there weren't enough officers around who could actually support and keep them safe. So what they wanted to do, if it was going to work, was that bylaw officers would ticket, but with the protection of police. And we now know that that was impossible because police say that they were having problems dealing with uh, dealing with resources. They didn't have enough officers, but also that the thousands of trucks had spread so far across the city in the downtown core. It wasn't just downtown, I should say. It also spread across the river to Coventry Road, a baseball stadium five kilometers east. Judy Trin, I'm going to have territory. to I'm going to have oh. to cut it there. But thank you so much. This has been uh, very helpful in us understanding the inquiry as it moves forward. Judy Trin, who's correspondent for CTV National News, okay. coming up after the break, I get to chat with a friend of mine from News Talk 1010, John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning. We're going to talk about his series on homelessness. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton filling in all this week on News Talk Today. We spend uh, from noon to two together. And thank you for those who are making the choice to do that in the middle of your, I'm assuming, busy day. Certainly it was a busy day at my house, I have to tell you. I don't know. October just seems to be a really busy time of year, but I'm thrilled to be here. I actually consider it a little bit of a break for... uh, my uh, my crazy day. And I did start my day, actually, by talking with the uh, morning host here at News Talk 1010 in Toronto, John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning. And we talked a little bit, and I listened to him talk about a new documentary that he has out, a, a dig deep into the issue of homelessness. And joining us to talk about what he discovered and a little bit of his journey is John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning. Welcome to News Talk Today. Hi, it's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So why homelessness as a, as a topic to dig a little deeper, and why now? Well, you know what? It uh, came out of a... Uh, sorry, that's my car making silly noises for you. Uh, it came out of a meeting that we held with our team and with a lot of the hosts and producers, and we were talking about, you know, what next in the documentary series that I pretty well, about twice a year, I do a fairly substantial documentary, and the idea was, let's get to the root. We're not going to solve, but let's get to the root of what our homeless situation in Toronto looks like. And it should be said, it's largely the same homeless situation in any major city, but Toronto is a magnet for people all over the province. And as a matter of fact, there's a pretty good number of people from Atlantic Canada and uh, Quebec who are part of our homeless. And tell us how you went about it in a, in a physical sense, where you went, who you visited with as part of your research, John. Well, the way I do my documentaries is that I, I just begin a deep dive. I certainly do all kinds of research at my task, but I go out into the field and I hold conversations with people. I do interviews. Sometimes they're recorded, sometimes they're not, as you can imagine. Um, when you're doing something like homelessness, there are a lot of issues about privacy and mental health and uh, permission and all that kind of thing. Um, but I went into it just saying, I'll see what the story is as I meet people and as I get their stories. And what I can tell you is, I mean, we've packaged this up into five different feature reports, and each one of them is extraordinarily different. And mostly that's because of the enormous variety of, um, of homeless people. You know, there are the people that the face of homelessness, as one of the caseworkers was telling me, is the people we meet in the street. And they're probably the worst of the worst in terms of the kind of deprivations they face um, and in the precariousness of their day-to-day lives. I mean, there's a memorial at uh, Trinity Church in downtown Toronto, which is dedicated to homeless people who have died on the street. And they add names to that almost every single week. But then, you know, I went to Good, uh, Good Shepherd uh, Shelter. Um, I went out and uh, sat with people in the tent villages that have sprung up in parks all over the downtown. I talked to people who work for the city as well, though, who are part of a program called Streets to Home. And that's been a fairly successful program where you get people into housing, you give them the support they need to stay in that housing, and it's actually making a genuine difference. And you mentioned uh, the the tent um, villages. Uh, we yeah. call them encampments here in Toronto. I mean, it was not unique to our city, but certainly it's been an issue in the last little while. You finding that they're popping up again? I mean, the city, uh, oh, yeah. the mayor has been very strong on this and, and has taken a lot of criticism without bowing uh, to it. But obviously, as it gets colder, we're likely to see more. Um, I think so. Certainly, I'm seeing them pop up. And 
pretty well all over town. I mean, there were some major encampments, and they were broken up. But I think we probably got to a certain horizon in the municipal election campaign where the optics of sending in police and the activists who would uh, push back and all of that stuff, that was not something that a sitting mayor uh, was probably willing to continue to do. So more and more people are living in the parks. And, and one of the interesting things, Deb, is one of the street pastors I went out and did rounds with, he believes very firmly that it's a civil right, an international civil right, that public lands should be available to people. And some people would see that as, you know, sort of a crazy activist argument, and maybe it is. But he simply believes that these are citizens of this city or any other city, and as such, they deserve to be able to camp in a, in a public area, or as he calls it, the commons. Yeah, I, I, I'd be one of those who, who think that's just a ridiculous position. <laughs> I'm talking with John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning on News Talk 1010 in Toronto about a new set of uh, a series of five uh, in a documentary series that he's doing on homelessness specifically here in Toronto. John, anything that really surprised you? I mean, we've all been covering this issue. We've talked about it. Uh, And one texter say, you know, we've been talking about this for 30 years. We just have to acknowledge that it's about mental illness and drug abuse. And and until we do that, we won't get anywhere. That was one of our texts just a few minutes ago. Was there anything that really surprised you in your efforts this last few weeks? Well, you're absolutely right. A lot of this stuff is known to us. And, you know, I'm certainly not the first journalist or reporter to hit the streets and talk with homeless people and try to find out what their lives are like day to day. If anything, um, the aspect that surprised me is who makes up the city's definition of, of homelessness or, or precariously housed. And there is actually a department at the city, and their whole mandate is to figure out how to create affordable housing. And that's not affordable housing for somebody who was, like, deinstitutionalized and has been living uh, on a grade over a subway station. We're talking about two-income families with kids. And the problem in Toronto is it's become so expensive that the person who poured you coffee this morning can't afford to live in Toronto. So... There, that is a tranche of homelessness I don't think a lot of people think about. I think, you know, people see the subsidized towers where people with disabilities, for example, live and have uh, attention from both the city and from charities. They see the homeless on the streets. They think about the, the daily struggle for those people to get meals and to find a shelter bed. But that's a very nomadic existence. The, the city program is very much about trying to figure out how all tranches of the economy, uh, people at every level, are going to be able to find somewhere to live in Toronto. And you raise a good point. It's, you know, we say homeless, and yet it's such a broad swath of people uh, with very, very different circumstances. So any more insight into the solution coming out of your documentary in your mind? Well, if I learned anything, and I learned a lot, I think, um, I don't think there is necessarily a solution. Um, because there's always going to be homeless people. One of the um, social workers I was talking to said, you know, I can house 2,000 people, and then I'm going to turn around, there's going to be 2,000 more, because they will, you know, there's the people who are currently couch surfing at a relative's house or with a friend who gets sick and tired of them and kicks them out. Um, There are people coming in from other cities because they see Toronto as a better base of operations, I guess, if they're going to be homeless. So I don't think there are any solutions. I can't account for the, uh, and in a good way, zealotry of a lot of the people who, for faith reasons or just because it's their life's passion, who work in this sector or volunteer in this sector. And I can also say that I think that a lot of these people, in spite of what activists will say and have said on my show, a lot of these people are very 
they're not well looked after. There's a much more desirable existence, I'm sure. Um, but when you visit a place like Good Shepherd, at the very least, you realize that there's a warm bed, a locker to put the stuff that you own, what little there is, and three meals a day. And when you when you go to, say, Good Shepherd, would you find, again, the same cross-section of folks that you talked about? Or is that much more the, the nomadic homeless that, that we sort of think of naturally when we think of the homeless population? Yeah, it is more of the, the nomadic homeless. And because of COVID, actually, what they had to do was instead of sort of, uh, you know, almost like a nightclub, you know, the first 50 people in get to stay tonight, uh, that would have been pre-COVID. Now they have a list of 50 people and they hold their beds for them and they are expected, or they are offered anyway, a bed every single night and three meals a day based on those 50. So 150 meals will be produced in a day. Then there are the people who are not staying at Good Shepherd who will line up for lunch, snack, and dinner. Um, but yeah, uh, the people you meet in most of the shelters are the, the people with the most difficulty. And in many ways, like I went to Seton House, and uh, they have um, they actually have a hospice. They have hospice care for the clients they've been seeing for years who get to the end of their lives, and they want to die with dignity. Just a few seconds left. Tell us where our listeners can tap into your documentary, John. Well, we're going to be posting every report as we roll them out, but it is airing in Toronto at the very least at 6.35 and 8.35 every day until Friday. Fantastic. John Moore, host of More in the Morning on News Talk 1010 here in Toronto. Pleasure chatting and thanks for all this work. Have a good show. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about a big grocer, in fact, the biggest grocer in Canada, who's going to give us a break on a handful of products, and more than a handful. We're going to talk about it. Is it a stunt? Is it something that's going to make you change your buying habits? I'm Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Network. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Deb Hutton, uh, hosting this week for News Talk Today. We get a chance over the course of a couple of hours to drill down on a few topics, in this case on a Monday afternoon over the weekend and a little bit of what's happening today. First thing this morning, a number of us, perhaps if you are a customer of uh, Canada's biggest grocery store, Loblaws, got an email Certainly, it, it hit on uh, social media and in the ra- mainstream media that Loblaws has announced, their CEO in particular, Galen Weston, that they are going to put a freeze until January of 2023, so uh, 2023, the next few months, on 1,500 of their no-name products. Now, those, uh, of course, for anyone who does shop at any of the Loblaws stores are generally pantry-type items, but there are some things like uh, bags of apples that fall under their no-name brand, uh, bacon. There's, there's a few things that go beyond those those pantry staples and, and uh, are things that are fresh that many of us buy on a regular basis. What we're going to talk about today is whether this is a stunt, as I called it this morning, a public relations uh, exercise or whether this will actually have an impact and start a change in how we look at our grocery stores, how we view our corporate leaders in the grocery market, and whether or not this is going to make you change your buying habits. 
Joining us to drill down a little bit on that topic is Dr. Stuart Smythe, who's uh, the industry-funded research chair in agri-food innovation. Welcome to News Talk today, Dr. Smythe. Good morning, Deb. Pleasure to be here. So uh, the sort of the, the PR, you know, stunt stuff aside that I just talked about, what is really happening here in Canada's uh, biggest grocery chain? I think Loblaws is is responding a little bit to the public pressure um, to, you know, to sort of investigate what's going on at the, the retail level in terms of price increases and, and is the retail sector having an impact on that. And so I think that whether it's a stunt or, or I think, you know, is Loblaw is genuinely concerned about this, but I think they're, they're adding a bit of transparency to say, look, for, for the next three and a half months, we're going to hold, prices steady on on 1500 products or so. Now this is a trend that actually has started elsewhere in the world. Uh are we a little late to the game on this? Um it it's been in place for a little while in in some European countries. Um that's tough to say. I, I think we're probably about on par with with some of the other industrial countries that you know finally the the retail space is saying look we're we're going to step up and and try to present ourselves as as being uh, more empathetic with with higher food prices for the public. Now, this is obviously, as I said, for the next few months until the end of January 2023. What did the inflation uh, index look like for grocery products between now and say January? Food prices have been higher than the the general inflation. So even though inflation overall is is down to around seven percent. Food inflation has been ranging from 10 to 12 percent for the last number of months. And and now as we're starting to import more vegetables and produce from the United States, the Canadian dollar has been dropping and, and fuel prices are, are higher than they were over the summer. I don't see anything indicating that, that those factors are, are key ones that we're going that we should expect to see much of a reduction in food inflation. So this actually, if if in fact they they carry through with this on fifteen hundred uh, of their products, this actually could save the average consumer a fair amount of money. I think it could certainly, you know, on the on their in house frozen vegetables would be an example where households could could look at at saving a little bit of money over the over the course of the next three or four months. So this has been a topic. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Stuart Smythe, who's the industry-funded research chair in agri-food innovation, about Loblaw's move this morning to freeze for the next few months uh, about 1,500 of their no-name brand products. It's been a topic in uh, in Parliament, quite frankly. The NDP um, have talked about greedflation, a term I don't particularly like. Uh, I'm not a fan of, of corporation bashing for the sake of it. Uh, but they actually have called on uh, the government to make a number of changes that they say will help address the issue of of corporate greed in the grocery industry. So things like tougher penalties for price fixing, which I think we could all get on board with, um, greater accountability. I don't know how I feel about that, so I'll ask you about that one, Dr. Smythe, and strong, stronger competition laws. Are there actual things that can be done along this line that would be more than just a, a sort of an NDP PR stunt that actually could help consumers over the over the coming months? Well, there have been a couple of cases of price fixing in the last you know four or five years, so so that's definitely something that that the food industry has been guilty of. There's 
There's no doubt about that. Um, I compare grocery stores similar to, to gas stations. You know, gas stations are profitable based on how many liters or of fuel they're going to sell on an annual basis. And, and the, it's largely the same with the, with the retail sector that, you know, they need to sell so many products per square foot of, of shelf space and, and the higher selling products obviously get a little bit more shelf space and the lower selling ones tend to get, get very little. So not the retail sector has a fairly small impact on the, on the sticker price of, of food products. So, I'm I'm not convinced that an investigation is is going to shed um, significant amounts of of light. Um, I, I think that we we've got pretty strong competition laws in this country, and and there's there's a good variety of chains and and independent grocery stores in most of the provinces. So I, I I'm not convinced that a you know a, a review the maybe the way the NDP is is considering would would shed much light on anything. Well, I will say, uh, Galen Weston, who's the CEO of Loblaw's company, who made this announcement this morning, uh, did say that it's, quote, maddeningly that much of this is out of the company's control. And I think you just alluded to that. Is that actually a legitimate position for the CEO to take? Yeah, I would agree with with Mr. Weston on that one, that, you know, the exchange rate and, and the fuel prices, um, you know, OPEC announced a couple months ago, or last month, that, that they're going to reduce uh, oil production. So, so that's increased the, the price of fuel and oil. So a, a lot of the things that impact the price of, of food when it gets to a grocery store is, is way beyond the control of, of any one individual or, or, or chain of grocery stores. And do you see this sort of catching on? Uh, we've we've called it a PR stunt, um, sort of looking like they're they're helping the average Joe out there. But do you see it catching on? Do you think other grocery stores will come forward with some form of of price break? That's a really good question, Deb. I, I think it's probably going to be in a little uh, in relation to what percentage are their in house brands as a percentage of their overall items available. So so a grocery store has tens of thousands of items available and, and in this case Loblaws is saying we're going to freeze about fifteen hundred. So if if a, a retail space had, you know, um, in house products that accounted for for maybe two thousand or three thousand or, or higher, um, that would be a considerably different decision versus one that say only has five hundred products. So I think this may be dependent on how many um, in-house products a, a retailer has in, within, a, within a store. Dr. Smythe, we're going to cut it there. You're listening to News Talk Today. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton. And right now, here's what you need to know about Ukraine. That's where we're headed in this next segment. Lots happening over the weekend. And in fact, just this morning, uh, as families in Kiev, the, the capital of Ukraine, were getting ready to start their week, there were a series of explosive-laden suicide drones that struck the area. In fact, there were more than, I think in Kiev alone, more than 13 that were shot down, making Kiev uh, again a target in this conflict. 
conflict, which is now into, I don't know how many months we're into, about eight or nine months uh, total. So joining us to give us an update, tell us what all this means and and what's likely to happen over the next few uh, days and weeks is retired General Dennis Thompson, who's a former NATO task force commander. Former General uh, Thompson, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you for having me, Deb. So give us a sense of, of where we're at. As I said, lots happening over the last few days. It feels like a bit of a renewed effort on Russia's part. Is that actually what's happening, or is it just the perspective we have from some of the news reports? But I think it, it really is uh, prudent to split this into two pieces. There's what's going on militarily right on the front lines between the Russian and Ukrainian forces, and then what's happening in the rear areas, which is uh, what you just spoke about with respect to Kiev. So I'll address that first, because obviously sure. it's the most topical thing today. Uh, as you mentioned, there were a number of loitering munitions, or suicide drones, as they're, as they're known uh, colloquially, that are of Iranian manufacture and that carry over 30 kilograms apiece that were fired at Kiev. And this is something that's been going on ever since the Ukrainians in their deep battle, their uh, their attacks against Russian infrastructure, uh, damaged heavily the Kerch Bridge that connects connects Russia proper with Crimea, a bridge, incidentally, which was opened by President Putin himself. Uh, that resulted in all this retaliation that we saw that last week. Uh, but this wave of attacks against um, Kiev appears to have been triggered by attacks by Ukraine, allegedly by Ukraine, because, of course, they never they never admit to uh, responsibility for these things, against the town of Belgrud, which is a major logistics hub for the Russians. So it's tit for tat, and it's typical of the Russians to go after civilian targets because they're really only interested in terrorizing the population and hoping to bring them to their knees, not realizing, of course, it's having the exact opposite effect. And what is the the purpose of doing civilian versus um, strategic military attacks? Like, is it well, is it just to wear people down from a military perspective? It is, and it's an easier target. That's that's uh, sadly the the truth. Because of course, the air defense systems that the Ukrainians would have deployed would be deployed for the most part around targets of high military value, which unfortunately don't include civilian centers. And why NATO? is in a big hurry to uh, deliver as many reasonable, uh, reasonably capable uh, surface air missile systems to the Ukrainians so they can defend the population centers. And as you quite, quite rightly pointed out, pointed out, they did shoot down a number of them because this particular Iranian loitering munition is not fast at all. It's propeller-driven. Uh, it has an enormous range of, of uh, over 1,500 miles or 2,000 kilometers, and, uh, and, of course, it strikes terror because you can hear it coming. Uh, but if you have any form of air defense, you can knock the thing down, except it's hard to blanket cover a country the size of Ukraine. So uh, NATO, uh, quite rightly, has stepped up its um, program to deliver a number of air defense systems to, uh, to the Ukrainians and to give them systems that are what's called networked. In other words, you don't have to rely on the radar that's necessarily slave to your own missile. You can pick up uh, the target information from another radar and then fire on that target. And that will greatly increase the Ukrainians' ability to defend their, their centers of population. And in the interim, they're just going to have to uh, um, accept the fact that the Russians, uh, in violation of any sort of rules of armed conflict, are going to continue to bombard civilian centers. 
And is NATO's stepped-up efforts in and of itself not a bit of an irritant for Russia? Like, does it, in fact, while it's, it's obviously designed to, to assist Ukraine, as you've just outlined, does it in and of itself mean that Russia doubles down at all? Uh, well, the whole, all of NATO's efforts to help the Ukrainians are an irritant to uh, Mr. Putin, and that's fine. As long as we don't call, we don't cross a line that uh, that he would deem to be unacceptable, and that's why the systems that are being delivered are for the most most part medium range anti air systems. Um, in other words, they're not systems that can reach into Russian airspace and knock down uh, missiles or airplanes that are coming from Russian airspace towards Ukraine. And you and the NATO definitely has those. They've got the Patriot missile system and the Aegis Ashore systems, which both exist in Eastern Europe, but that the United States has steadfastly decided not to deliver to the Ukrainians for exactly the reason that they don't want to poke Mr. Putin in the eye too much. Uh, but the systems that they will deliver will defend against his increasingly less technologically capable military. He's running out of spare parts and he's running out of options and he keeps wasting. Uh, these precision weapons on targets that uh, are of no of, of little to no military significance. Are there other things that Ukraine is asking for uh, that are not being delivered? Well, I think uh, one of the things they would like to have, as you probably you probably heard of this famous uh, HIMARS missile that has a range of seventy kilometers that they've been using uh, extensively to knock down bridges and whatnot over the Dnieper River in order to cut off the Russian forces that are in the town of Kherson. Weapons of that ilk they would like to have more of, but they'd also like to have the longer-range version of it, which can reach 300 kilometers. And again, this is a missile that the U.S. is not willing to give to the Ukrainians because it, it, and in the end, it's, you're, you're no longer talking about a defensive weapon. It is a very offensive weapon that can reach deep into the enemy's uh, territory. And, and I think that the U.S. has taken a prudent course to not deliver either that one, which is called the Army Tactical uh, Advanced Conventional Munition, or ATACMS, nor, nor the Patriot or the Aegis systems to, uh, to the Ukrainians who would dearly love to have them because it would increase their ability to take it to the Russians. I'm speaking uh, with retired General Dennis Thompson, who's a former NATO task force commander, just getting a little bit of an update on what's been happening in Ukraine on the ground. Um, I ask this all the time, uh, retired General Thompson, when I, I have an opportunity to speak with someone who's who's an expert in, in these types of issues. What does the end look like? As we move along here, are we any closer to knowing how to reach some sort of end to this conflict, in your view? Well, I honestly believe it'll be decided on the battlefield. I've thought, I've thought that from the start. The Ukrainians aren't going to back down until they've taken back all of the land that's been uh, illegally um, annexed from them by Russia. And the Russians aren't going to back down uh, until, uh, at least at the, at, for the current moment, or at least until they can force the Ukrainians to the negotiating table and, and try to carve out some kind of uh, acceptable peace. The problem is that at the moment, the Russians are in no position to force the Ukrainians to the negotiating table, and they're not going to go. They're going to continue to push on the Russians and to shove them out of their country uh, to the best of their ability. So it's tough to say where it will all end up. 
I, I think that as a minimum, the Ukrainians would want to take back the city of Kherson. That way they would have all of the territory to the west of the Dnieper River, which is a significant defensive barrier, as well as to take back as much of the eastern part of Ukraine, because they've been fairly successful there, as you're probably aware, and maybe ultimately take back Crimea. Uh, but, you know, the, um, trying to guess the future is a bit of a... Uh, is probably not recommended, and, and in the end, uh, it, I honestly believe it'll be decided on the battlefield. So neither t- neither side seems to be on the point of exhaustion yet, although the Russians are probably much closer to exhaustion than the Ukrainians are. Retired General Thompson, we thank you for your time and that insight. It's a, it's a depressing way to end the interview, but uh, thanks nonetheless for joining us. Thanks for having me, Deb. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk with the president of Cannabis Council of Canada and a former minister of health here in Ontario about what his council is calling for four years after the legalization of cannabis. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Network. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton hosting this uh, News Talk Today all this week. And now we're going to talk cannabis. Four years ago this week, the country legalized cannabis. And talking about that today and where we are in that journey is George Smitherman, the president of Cannabis Council of Canada and a former minister of health in Ontario. George, welcome to News Talk Today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And so nice to hear your voice. I have to say, George and I knew each other way back in Ontario politics. We did not sit on the same side of the House. I uh, was a staffer for the Conservative government at the time. George, of course, uh, a Liberal cabinet minister, uh, but have had a a long history of knowing each other and, and knowing each other's families. And so happy to have you on the show this afternoon. So four years ago this week, and you're not real happy with where we are. Well, in the big picture, we shouldn't lose sight of what an enormous initiative it was and that at four years, the Canadian public's overall like, pretty satisfied with how things have gone from a social standpoint and from a distance, probably the economic piece looks pretty good too. But there's an underlying fragility to the sector that we're really seeking to call attention to because the pie is not getting divvied up in a way that's going to make very very many of these cannabis ventures viable. And they've contributed billions, like 30 or $40 billion in GDP, license holders all across the country. Plus, uh, I know people see see the retail piece in Ontario. So there's a lot of fragility there. And at the four-year mark, we're calling urgent attention to some re- redistribution of the proceeds. And what does that look like? Like, what, are, what specifically are you calling for? You know, at the, at the heart of it, really, the excise tax was premised on the idea that cannabis was going to be $10 a gram and the tax was going to be $1 a gram. Now we have the cannabis priced after four years at about three fifty. But the tax is still at a dollar. So the implication of rather than a 10% uh, prediction on the taxes, we're into 36, 40, 45, depending on what formats you're into. 
Now, that's a harder fix, of course. You and I both know from our long history around politics, etc. On the shorter term, we're really pressing Health Canada for a moratorium on a special tax that they collect, 2.3%, which is not as impactful, but still is a bottom-line impact for companies and really uh, uh, would be an early sign that the government that has issued all of these licenses is interested to see the survival of these license holders. And many of them are in rural parts of parts of Canada. I'm sure that you've seen that uh, in your uh, in your journeys across uh, many parts of Ontario. And so what I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but just get you to spell it out a little bit more. So what is the upshot of the taxation situation? Is it that we have uh, people who have who have played by the rules and, and put their money into these businesses going out of business? Is it just hurting their profits? Or is there something more insidious happening, which is the continuation of the illegal market? Well, those are that's a great question, and it's all of those elements, although the word profit is practically foreign in this sector. Small, medium, or large, perfectly run or <laughs> perfectly run, sell every gram that you grow. By the time you've paid those tax bills, there, there's no profitability. Like the, the, that, the cash flow positive is a reach that is, for most people, un- unobtainable. So that's, uh, that's part and parcel of it. But you make the, the, the public policy objective of legalization was elimination of the illicit market. And really, we're in a circumstance where uh, it's getting it's very, very difficult to compete when you come out of the gate with a really high tax regime and also a really, really high regulatory regime. So we're really up against it if people still want to see the elimination of the illicit market. And at the moment, we'd say across the country, that's about sawed off at more or less 50-50. The other upside of that, Deb, is that there's still room to grow the pie, that if governments could kind of back off a little, we could work together to get more of the cannabis that is being consumed, purchased from the legal market. This would raise many, many boats and lift many sources of revenue for government and get to the point that some of these uh, cannabis companies could actually be paying taxes on profit, which at the moment is uh, not happening. And so what does that actually look like, George? On the shorter term, uh, it's uh, to take uh, some initiatives that would uh, have a moratorium, so pressing for a moratorium of this 2.3% tax. We're really pressing the government to take a look at working with us on addressing the limitations that we have on brand format. 10 milligram limit on our edibles and beverages is like being limited to practically a near beer offering. And so one of the areas where the illicit market is really kicking, uh, you know, kicking us in the category is we don't have competitive products in the legal market for many that, that many of the regular consumers of cannabis are looking for. So part of it is the financial aspect where we need governments to back off somewhat in the shorter term so we can grow the pie together and collect more money and have more profit. And some of it is to back off on some of the regulation. When you come forward with an initiative like this, of course, you're going to be instinctively very, very cautious. We've seen after four years that the implementation here, that the the sky hasn't fallen, but now we're trying to make sure that all of the investment that's occurred in communities across Canada don't also fall. So that's government, though, saying you can put more into your products, which is a tough thing for a government to do, even the one who legalized cannabis in the first place, isn't it? 
there's no there's no doubt i think that two things uh two things are favorable uh, one of those is that the is that uh governments uh follow you know sometimes enjoy precedents and the government really structured a lot of the first go round on the colorado model and we think that that offers some favorable insight data and the like to evaluate uh to evaluate such a policy uh such a policy change and I'd say that the, when when the regulation was first being struck, it was naturally struck with what I call kind of a belts and braces, uh, uh, you know, uh, mentality, very very uh, cautious, et cetera, and with the full expectation that the three year review, which they've just launched now a year late, would actually give us a chance to recalibrate. So the expectation was at the time that the bill was first implemented, that there would be an opportunity for recalibration. And we're calling attention to the urgent need to get at some of these things so that more of the uh, uh, opportunity uh, to capture illicit market can be gathered up and more communities can uh, see the investments continue to make a positive uh, impact for them, especially as it's been really, really significant in a lot of parts of rural Canada. So I've been taking some notes, George, because this this is not an area that I, I know a ton about. So there's an issue with quantity, if you will, upping the THC, for example, in your edibles to make it comparable to the underground market. There's an issue with price because of taxes. Uh, is there an issue with access at all? I think that, you know, uh, access is an issue in in the sense, like, if you talk to a Torontonian, they're like, what? Like, why all these stores? And I say, well, you know, just wait a month or two because you can see that the attrition is on. I mean, it's a market forces model, and it's going to take care of itself in a sense, but it's going to be a rough edge for quite a few investors and quite a few ma and pa invest- investors. So, there is, uh, you know, there is uh, definitely, uh, definitely that risk that's uh, coming forward. In Ontario, we have practically three million people that don't have access to local retail cannabis. In vast parts of the Greater Toronto area, that's the case. And then in downtown Toronto, you have a proliferation of illegal cannabis shops running 24/7, and now new mushroom shops. So there's also kind of enforcement, which uh, draws attention of local government uh, also. So there's a myriad of issues there. George Smitherman, who is president of the Cannabis Council of Canada, talking, imagine you and I talking taxes and being on the same place, George. I love it. I was part of a government that I think five out of six years had balanced budgets, and I still remain the kind of liberal that strongly believes in that as a uh, as a model, Devin. I think you and I could find a lot of common ground. It's been such a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you today. Thanks so much, George. Strange bedfellows indeed. You're listening to News Talk today. Coming up after the break, a bit of a sad story uh, out of Windsor. We're going to talk with a couple of parents who just want to see their extended family spend some time with their sick child. I'm Deb Hutton. This is the iHeartRadio Network. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton, who's hosting all this week from noon to two. So thank you for spending a little bit of your afternoon with me. We're going to actually uh, 
turn to a, a, a bit of a sad story, but I but I hope one that that also is is a little heartwarming for everyone. September 11th, a little girl named Olivia Gagnon was born at Lin- London Health Sciences Hospital. She is now at uh, Windsor Regional Hospital neonatal unit, and her parents are joining us on News Talk today to talk about their situation. And and I, usually we in talk radio, we set things up a little bit, but I'd actually like mom and dad to to tell their story. So Sheena Wallace-Wilson from Windsor and Bruce Gagnon also from Windsor, little Olivia's mom and dad, thank you for joining News Talk today. Tell us about Olivia. Hi. Um, well, Olivia, she... She was born on September 11th, and um, she she was small, uh, just over four pounds. But she she seemed healthy. We got a lot of um, tests done, and everything seemed to be pretty good. Her heart, her lungs, her kidneys, and then we ended up getting uh, genetics back, and the results were that she has a syndrome called. Um, trisomy 18, also known as Edwards syndrome. And it, um, the outcome of it is usually not good. Usually babies don't survive to birth or survive their first weeks or months afterwards. So it was a lot to take in for us. Absolutely. And Bruce, what was your experience at London Health Sciences? How long were, were, you, were you guys and, and Olivia in London Health Sciences? Uh, we were there for about a month, and uh, they treated us very well and let us have whoever we wanted to visit her there anytime. And then she was transferred, obviously, closer to home, and, and what has happened now? What What is the concern that you guys have raised? Nobody is allowed to visit her except for us, and uh, I feel like it's, you know, I, I have nothing wrong with the care or or the nurses or anything there. I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with them. It's the overall hospital regulations. And, like, she has a terminal illness, so I I think it's not fair that no one can come and see her besides her parents. She needs the love and support from her family. And just so I understand, is it a two-person rule at any given time, or is it just mom and dad? Just mom and dad. Only the parents, yeah. Because I will say my oldest daughter, uh, who just turned 15 this month, was in uh, the NICU for about the same amount of time initially as Olivia was. We were at um, uh, the intensive care unit, the neonatal intensive care unit, for three weeks, lived there. And um, that was, as I said, 15 years ago. And there was a two-person limit, but they did not limit that it could just be mom or dad. Right, and that would be fine with us. We 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 don't care if, even if it was a one person limit, as long as the whole family could go in one at a time. And certainly, we're not asking for a bunch of people to go rushing in there. And certainly, um, as much as I, I'm sure you are there most of the time, and so we appreciate you joining us to tell your story this afternoon. It is good to get a break. Having done that, the same right. journey, it is really good to get a break. So, what is the hospital telling you guys? They're saying that the only way they can come is if she's on palliative care or, like, close to, you know, dying. And and then they would change the policy. And then they would change it, yeah. And obviously... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, they made it seem like um, if something were to happen, if she were to be, like, in critical condition or not doing well, then they would, like, bend the rules and make arrangements for family to see her. 
which I don't think is fair because we don't want our family to go up there and see her on her deathbed. Right. We want grandmas and grandpas to spend some time with her. And that Mm -hmm. helps people in that condition. Like the love and the support from their family, you know, makes them go on. Yeah, it's, it's a, as I said, I've been there, uh, perhaps right. not in the exact same mode as you guys have been, but it, but it is. It's very lonely, it's very isolating, and mm-hmm. it's a very scary experience. That's right. And so are you sensing the hospital? I mean, you've obviously taken this issue public, and we're talking about yeah. it on, on News Talk today. Are you sensing that the hospital may change its policy? I think certainly the two-person policy, as I said, uh, had nothing to do with COVID. It was 15 years ago here in Toronto yeah. that, that we dealt with that policy. But are you sensing that they could give a little bit on it? Or is it, is it particularly intransigent because we're still in sort of the, the COVID environment? Well, we actually went to the patient advocate and like asked them and they straight they straight up said no so yeah they also had mentioned that um it's flu season coming up so they're still you know taking precautions for that as well which is understandable like we're not asking to bring in a bunch of people at once we're just asking for one at a time two at a time with masks sanitizing masks like everything that we're doing everything that the nurses are doing Lots of our family is fully vaccinated, flu shots. You know, it just seems like the restrictions are still really harsh when there is precautions that can be taken to see her. And, and clearly it's much better for for the two of you, I would guess, to have Olivia in Windsor as opposed to London. It's not a great drive, but but it's a drive nonetheless. Right. Yeah, we it's had better hope. to be closer to home. Yeah, and we had hope coming home that not only would we be home and around our family, but that they would get to see her as well. So it was disappointing to come here and find out that no one can see her. And, I mean, we understand the policy. We understand why it's there. We're just having a hard time understanding how it could be so different from city to city when we're in the same province. We're talking to Sheena Wallace-Wilson and Bruce Gagnon, whose daughter Olivia was born on September 11th, has been diagnosed with a a rare genetic condition, and they're hoping to have additional family members spend some time with Olivia as she lives, probably for a significant period of time, in the neonatal unit uh, at Windsor Regional Hospital. Is there anything that, that listeners can do to assist you in this at all? Do you believe that the hospital might, uh, under public pressure, change their position we're not only doing this for olivia we're doing this for all families who who have a kid who is terminal or has a condition because they deserve to see their family members it's an important thing do you believe that you will get to bring olivia home i believe she will eventually she's doing very well yeah we're just not sure when. So, but it's uncertain because, like, anything can happen. It, 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 we don't know. Have you reached out to your local politicians at all? Is there, again, is there anything that listeners in the Windsor area can do to assist you and put some pressure on this? I guess just making it more aware, like, more people know and it might help because, yeah, just getting the word out might help put some pressure and hopefully get some families to see their babies and grandbabies. And Are there other parents who share this concern uh, currently at the hospital with you and with Olivia? 
We haven't really spoke to many of the parents. Um, I have noticed a few parents coming from London as well, and I've kind of watched to see if I could run into them and maybe ask them how they felt about it. But some of them just came in and they got sent home fairly quickly. So I haven't had a chance to speak to any other parents. But but I'm sure there's lots out there. Yeah, I'm sure they would feel the same. I noticed, too, um, on the the second floor, um, not in the NICU, but where they have the babies, the maternity, the triage, uh, they don't allow kids or anything in there, too. And I've heard some mothers being really upset about the way they were treated and not being able to have their daughter with them. And Olivia has an older sister who can't even see her. Uh, that one's tough. I've I've been there as well yeah. with that. Yeah. Sheena Wallace, Wilson, Bruce Gagnon, we really thank you for sharing your story, and, and we wish the three of you and, and your other child all the best. Thank, thank you for having us. Such a sad story. You, you do understand regulations. You know the people who put them in place do it for the right reasons. But as I said, having been there, that is a, a very lonely and isolating situation to be in. And I'm sure uh, having some family be able to spell you off on occasion would be uh, really helpful to them. It is uh, the News Talk Today show. After the break, we'll come back and chat a little bit about TikTok. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Network. Little homies want to be like on my knees in the night saying prayers in the street like Been spending most their lives living in the gangster's paradise Been spending most their lives living in the gangster's paradise Holding the politicians and pundits to account You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network As I walk through the Welcome back. You're hearing two sets of songs in that uh, uh, opening segment. I'm Deb Hutton, hosting all this week from noon to two o'clock in the afternoon. And this is uh, the first was a woman named Tiana, and the second was the late rapper Coolio. Tiana, who is joining us this afternoon, has gone viral on TikTok TikTok, with her 12-hour tribute to the late rapper. She said making uh, videos is a way for her to enjoy every moment of life. She's known as Untainted Afro on TikTok and YouTube, and she decided to honor Coolio, who died suddenly at the age of 59 recently, by rapping along to his 1995 hit Gangsta's Paradise for 12 hours straight. Tiana, welcome to News Talk today. Hello. Thanks for having me. So you rapped for 12 hours the same song over and over and over again. Yeah, yes, I did. And what caused you to do it? Obviously, you were a fan of Coolio's music, but what caused you to actually do 12 hours of the same song? Well, on my TikTok, I do, like, marathons a lot. Like, I rap, like, songs, um, different songs. Like, I've done, like, Eminem songs and, like, Doja Cat songs. And and then I heard about Kudia's passing, so I decided I would, like, do a tribute for him. So I just, yeah, I just decided to do Kudia. When you say you do marathons, like, how long did you actually, prior to this, do um, a, a tribute to folks? Um, I would do songs for, like, 12 hours, 10 or 12. Oh, so this is not new to you? 
No, it's not. This is like my fifth or sixth one that I've done. And is this the first one to go viral? Um, I thought the other ones gone, went viral, but this definitely went like more viral than the other ones. Like the other ones got like 500,000 views on like TikTok. But this one like 8 million, which is pretty crazy. 8 million, really? Yeah. And is this what you do full time? Um, it's what I do mostly, yeah. Like, you did, like, and does it bring you in money? Is this an income stream for you? Yeah, TikTok's an income stream. And and so you are able to live off of this because I I read a story about this and and you quit university. Yeah, I did. Yeah, um, I don't live completely off of it. Like, I have like a part time job. Oh, you do. You have other source yeah. of income. Yeah. So, how much of your life do you spend doing this? Um, most of, honestly, most of my life is on TikTok. I'm on TikTok like all, all the time. Like today I was on there for like five hours. So tell me how it works for somebody who's a real neophyte. I have, I have young kids. So, I mean, I, I have no choice, but to see some things on TikTok, but tell me how this actually works, that this could be a, a, a decent in, income stream for you. Well, on, on TikTok, like, um, you get in Canada, there's not like a creator fund, but. Um, on like TikTok Live, um, the the viewers like can like send like they're called like gifts, and they're like it shows up on the screen, and then I can like um, take it out, and it converts to like actual money that I can that I can use. Oh, so this isn't based on advertising or no, anything like that. This is based on, on views. Not in Canada. Not in Canada because there isn't a TikTok um, creator fund in Canada. But yet you've chosen to stay in Canada and make this your livelihood. Well, I I live in Canada, yeah, and um, and I do TikTok. Like it wasn't when I first started doing TikTok, I was I wasn't really expecting to earn things, earn anything from it. But then it just happened, so that's what I do, and it's fun. Okay, so tell us what what like motivates you to pick some of these songs. Um, the first song I ever did was Rap God, and I I did that song because it was like a challenging song, and I know that like I wanted to kind of like impress myself and impress like my viewers by like rapping like a kind of difficult song and I wanted to see if I could do it because I've never actually sat and done the same thing for 12 hours before. And would you ever consider a career in rap? Career in rap? Yes I would. And and is that something that you're working on? Um am I working on? Um not necessarily I'm just kind of like doing whatever pops into my mind right now. Okay. And yet I, 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 I'm sounding a bit incredulous because I come from, I, I'll say a generation, but maybe I'm, I'm uh, insulting other people my age. But like the notion that, that you would get up and decide you're going to rap up to 12 hours and you're actually living that life is just, I, I find it fascinating and I, I'm quite incredulous about the right. concept. So like help me understand it a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I just, really enjoy rapping and listening to songs so I don't know if it's like a weird ability but I'm just able to like sit and sing the same song over and over again and also when I sing the same song for like 12 hours it helps me with like the flow so when I sing it again I'll be able to like sing it like better and it's just it's like practice almost so like I'm just I like the song a lot so I'm able to sit and just sing it and yeah and Tiana you're 21 right yeah. And so what what's your plan or do you just you just live by the moment? What's your plan going forward? Yeah, I live by the moment. And always have? Not always have, but like for at, at this point in my life it's just I'm just having fun, so I just like to live by the moment.
And would you, are you concerned about, like, here I go again with my perspective on life, but are you concerned about your ability sort of over the long term to, to make an income and provide from your, for yourself? No, I'm not. Like I'm if, not concerned. Um, I believe that by following my passions, I'll make a way. And how long has this been one of your passions? Rapping? Yeah. Oh, I've I've loved rapping since I was like a kid. Like when I was younger, I used to like, like in like talent shows and stuff. I would I would rap for my classmates. So yeah, I used to rap Eminem a lot when I was younger. Okay, and and do you mind me asking what your part time job is as well? Oh, it's just like a regular like restaurant. You're a server, or you work you work at at a restaurant? Yeah, something like that. Okay, cool. All right, give us a little taste of uh, of your current uh, viral TikTok rap song, which is a tribute to the late rapper Coolio. Take it away, Tiana. Oh, okay. Like with the music? No, just go for it. Okay. Been spending most of our lives living in a gangster's paradise. Been spending most our lives living in a gangster's paradise. Keep spending most our lives living in a gangster's paradise. Keep spending most our lives living in a gangster's paradise. Tell me why are we so blind to see that the words we heard are you and me? That's Tiana, who's giving us a taste of her TikTok viral rap song. Tiana, we thank you for joining News Talk today. Thank you so much. Tony Tedesco, I have to tell you, I you can hear it in my voice. I am completely incapable of understanding this. And yet I love the notion that a person says, this is my passion and this is what I'm going to do. But I have to tell you, as a parent, I would be unhappy with my child saying, I'm just going to go with this particular passion. I can't really imagine that myself. I mean, maybe after the show, I might go do some karaoke Madonna, (laughs) but uh, I don't know if I could try and do this and aim to make a living at it. Oh, my goodness. Hey, kudos to Tiana for having the guts to go for what she loves. Uh, All right. Listen, that's it for our show today. I'll be back tomorrow at noon. It's News Talk Today.